Okay, well, welcome to Praxis. Uh, good to see your faces. I have you guys in gallery view, uh, but don't worry, I can't see too many details. But uh, just on behalf of the church, we're so thankful for your willingness to tune in, to take part of your week, to join us as we fellowship around God's word. Uh, as a group, as Praxis, we've been studying the book of Malachi. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. We'll be finishing up chapter 2, uh, resuming where we left off last week when uh, Rob was so kind and gracious to teach us. Uh, so tonight's passage is Malachi chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 10, and then we're going to go all the way down to verse 16. So I'll go ahead and read our section of scripture for us, and then we will pray for the Lord's help. Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. This is the word of God. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit. And do not be faithless. Let's pray. God, we come to you now because we are beggars. We desperately need your help. And so we ask that even as your word is opened, Lord, that you would open our heart. That you would do a miracle and grant sight to behold of the richness of this text. Lord, we know that your word is not bound even though we are physically separated. It can reach us. And so pierce our hearts and leave us undone that we might see what it looks like to worship and honor you. And so, Lord, encourage our hearts that we might be stirred to greater faithfulness. Oh, Lord, we pray that your word would uh, nourish our souls, uh, mature us, strengthen us, that we might represent you well and live for you. We pray that this time would be edifying, uh, equipping, and that uh, we might have our attentions riveted upon Christ, uh, his beauty, his majesty, his graciousness. We pray for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how you rent out an apartment is very different than how you befriend someone. I, I think that goes without saying, but I want us to consider the dynamic of both. When you're interested in moving into a new place, you need to prove employment, get a credit check. 
you participate in a walkthrough before going through uh, terms and conditions, right? It is due by a certain day uh, uh, of the month, every month. And in return, you get keys for an apartment, a new place to call home. This relationship between a landlord and a tenant is contractual. No one's under the illusion that they're signing up to become BFFs, right? Like you're not expecting your landlord to show up, say, to your birthday party. Rental agreements are sheerly an exchange of services. But when it comes to a friendship, it's entirely different. You don't meet someone for the first time and then whip out pen and paper with all the stipulations for any further interaction. You don't type up a list of requirements and responsibilities to be carried forth by both parties or you don't pay monthly friendship dues, or at least you shouldn't. If you're in one of those uh, friendships, get out of it. No, a friendship is built upon mutual trust, on a personal relationship as you get to know the individual. And to adopt a business approach would probably put a swift end to it. And to, at the same time, be buddy-buddy with your landlord is probably not going to work out because that's not what he had in mind. On the spectrum, a covenant, a covenant lands somewhere between contracts and friendships. In fact, the tricky thing about a covenant is that it kind of incorporates elements of both. There are components of a personal relationship as well as contractual obligations. But it's not, and hear me clearly, 50-50. Most of the time, covenants are built out from the personal side, the relational aspect that a covenant is primarily a relationship before all the expectations and responsibilities are then teased out. And this matches the contour of where we are in the book of Malachi. In centuries past, God entered into a covenant with his people. And in the opening verses of Malachi, God reminds the Israelites of his personal relationship one initiated and motivated by his love, by his commitment to them. But this is no free-flowing arrangement. It is a love that, as we know, meets us and then changes us. The Israelites were to model this in their response, in their appreciation of God's gracious and electing love. They were to devote themselves, therefore, wholeheartedly to God and God alone. But after starting this book on such a heartwarming note, we're submerged into the people's failure. Because the Israelites, well, they refuse to hold up to their end of the bargain, if you will, to render devotion to God. We find the Israelites instead despising their covenant-keeping God by sacrificing the lame, the sick, even departing and ignoring his instruction as we saw last week from Malachi chapter two. Instead of a covenant love, a committed life, well, the Israelites dishonored God with their disobedience. And in tonight's passage, 
Malachi continues this very indictment against God's people. I mean, if you scan these verses, the theme becomes apparent. It's repeated many times so that it's inescapable. Verse 10, why then are we faithless to one another? Verse 11, Judah has been faithless. Verse 14, to whom you have been faithless. Verse 16, and do not be faithless. To a faithful God, these people were guilty of being faithless. And listen, faithlessness is not an ancient problem. It's not something unique to the Israelites of old. No, it can still reside in our hearts today. So it serves us well to capitalize upon this opportunity. That our passage allows us to analyze the faithlessness of Israel so that we would learn from their mistakes and strive to be faithful. Now, with that in mind, we begin with the first point of our passage. Faithless in community. Faithless in community. Here is the driving force, the main reason behind faithlessness. We violate trust and damage relationships both vertically with God and horizontally with each other when we forget our identity. Our identity as the united people of God. Look at the insights Malachi brings out for us in verse 10. He says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Verse 10 is like a thesis statement, only it's in the format of a question. There's a series of rhetorical questions are just flat out embarrassing because the answer to them are so obvious. This is nothing new to them or to us. But much to our shame, how easy is it to forget these foundational truths? So Malachi, he's connecting the dots. He's stringing the people of God together, and he's underscoring the common bond, the common denominator, if you will. And that is God as Father. Everything is framed through family. Now, on top of highlighting their shared divine father, Malachi follows up with their shared divine origin. He says Israel was created by God. And there's a nuance here that is important to grasp. When Malachi talks about God's creation, he's not referring to the general creation of human beings. No, it is much more pointed. Malachi is speaking directly to Israel, to people, yes, but specifically the people of God. This is about a special creation of a particular group, one nation, the Israelites. In fact, this verb for create is only used for divine creation, reserved for when God is the subject, the agent of creation. And so do you get what's being stressed Just as God elected and chose to set his affection on Jacob and the Israelites, so the same distinct relationship is being brought to mind. God raises his hand and takes full responsibility. He is the sole catalyst for the creation of his people. Why? Because in his infinite wisdom, God has assigned a very special mission 
for the Israelites. They were to represent him. They were to be faithful to him who is faithful. And I think immediately we can see the parallel. Because guess what? God creates his church. It is a divine institution. And you can hear Jesus raising his voice, taking on full responsibility. I will build my church. So will we represent Christ? Will we be faithful to him who is faithful? Well, we may wonder, well, what's this going to look like then? Well, one suggestion surfaces from our text. Read on. Now, what's interesting about the second half of verse 10 is that there is a subtle shift. We expect Malachi's charge to end with, why then are we faithless to God, right? After all, that's the subject that the prophet has been drawing our attention to, God the Father, God the Creator. Instead, what does Malachi say? He says, why then are we faithless to one another? You see, there's a solidarity between God and his people. Those redeemed by God always live in community and bear his name. We are the family of God, where the vertical is demonstrated, manifested in the horizontal, where our faith in God is seen in how we treat one another where it is impossible in some ways to express our faith apart from our faithfulness towards each other. Let me illustrate. If you saw well-behaved kids loving each other, you know, just being kind and serving their siblings, you draw some quick conclusions about their parents. You'd say, man, Pastor Allen must be awesome and a godly father. To which I would reply, yes, thank you very much. Those things are all very true. But if hypothetically, my kids were constantly at each other's throats, you know, trading blows, flying fists, you probably draw a different sort of conclusion. You cast judgment on my wife. I'm just kidding. You cast judgment on me, right? Well, that is essentially what is happening here in the Jewish community. They had no problem stabbing each other in the back, violating, breaking each other's trust, acting treacherously towards one another, which is literally what faithless means. And we aren't given a laundry list of all their nasty offenses and crimes, but we don't have to search far and wide to catch a glimpse. And recall, as we saw back in chapter one, the people had no remorse no qualms, no issues with being violent and stealing livestock from each other to then offer this contraband as holy sacrifice to their holy God. That's crazy, but it's telling. It's not only reflecting poorly upon God, but it betrayed the very covenant he made with them, the covenant of our fathers, as verse 10 tells us. You see, when God created this nation, he made it official by giving them the law. Moses ascended Mount Sinai to receive instruction for God to deliver to who? Not the Canaanites, not the Amorites, not the Hittites, not any other pagan nation, but Israel. The Mosaic law was given to the nation of Israel to formula, formally inaugurate them as a nation. 
kind of like the U.S. Constitution for us. Well, God's covenant was made public by the Ten Commandments, a code of conduct so that all other foreign nations could observe the Israelites and see what distinguished them, what separated them, what made them holy. The Israelites were to be a living exhibit of what it looks like to have the one true God as king. The people of God were to be an animated film of the glory of God. But when these pagan nations, when these foreign countries, when they took a closer look at Israel, what did they see? Maimed sacrifices, cavalier worship, cheating God and cheating others. The Israelites were behaving in ways contrary to the covenant. Instead of faithfulness, they couldn't even be faithful to one another. And before their watching world, their shattered relationships, their disunity declared a God who didn't have it all together. In practice, we're staring at the application. Because as people ransomed by the blood of Christ, as new covenant believers, what does our community, what does our community express about our God? You know, if people were to observe how we interact, what sorts of deductions and conclusions would they make about him? That God's patient or petty? That God's gracious or he holds grudges? That God loves those that are hard or easy? That God serves when it's convenient or costly? You see, our relationships with each other they don't just expose our character, but they tell of his. We need to feel both the, the weightiness and the privilege of this, that we can depict a fractured, confused, small, and impotent God, or by his grace, we can magnify that he is loving, that he is sovereign, that he is wise, that he is our true Father. We can display that we are the captain of our own souls or that we belong to God who created us, covenanted with us, brought us into community of the church to live out our faith. We can do what suits us, using people and others like commodities, or we can herald the supremacy of Christ by how we faithfully love, serve, and honor each other. Friends, don't forget who you are, that in Christ, we are a redeemed community, the same body knit together by the power of the gospel and the glory of God. And faithfulness is a community project, which is why unfaithfulness has community consequences. To prove this, Malachi transitions to concrete examples, case studies of unfaithfulness. And he goes straight to the most intimate relationship where we would expect faithfulness to be exemplified. He goes to marriages. But tragically, that was not a good example. We reach our second point for tonight. Faithless in covenant with our maker. Faithless in covenant with our maker. Verse 11. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. How? And has married the daughter 
of a foreign god. Seems like a strange verse. Well, what's going on here? How is this an evidence of unfaithfulness? Well, Malachi puts his finger on the crux of the matter at the end of verse 11. Judah has been an abomination and profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. How? By marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now, let's first address what this doesn't mean. Malachi is not prohibiting ethnically diverse marriage, where if you're Korean, you can't marry uh, someone who's Chinese, where if you're African, you can't marry someone who's Mexican. No, this is not racism. I mean, just to name a few, the Israelites enfolded other people, like Ruth, the Moabite, or Rahab, the Canaanite. So what is going on in verse 11? Well, we just need to read a little more carefully. The Israelites' crime is not that they married the daughter of a foreigner, someone ethnically outside of Israel. Their guilt is in that they married the daughter of a foreign god, someone who still identified with the worship of a pagan deity. Outsiders were welcomed in as long as they left their false idols at the door, as long as they committed themselves to the worship of the God of Israel. I mean, recall what Ruth vowed to Naomi, that your people shall be my people, that your God shall be my God. Conversion, therefore, before lifelong company. But the Israelites, well, they had compromised. And in their, and, and, uh, in their closest of human relationships, they had married daughters who uh, pledged their allegiance to foreign gods. And as we know, a house divided will not stand. The sanctuary of the Lord was profaned. And just think about that. The sanctuary of the Lord, his holy temple, his house, symbolic of worship, of complete and utter devotion to the Lord. But the people's marriage to these idolatrous women was communicating the opposite message. That it's okay to worship God in some areas, but to leave other parts out. Sure, we'll do religious practice, but not worship God in personal relationships. This is essentially the Old Testament equivalent of being unequally yoked. The Israelites had transgressed their claim to be the covenant people of God by making covenants, if you will, with other gods. Now, I'm going to tackle the elephant in this virtual Zoom room. Uh, this is what makes missionary dating so dangerous. It confuses the order and the authority. It's pursuing someone that the scriptures call an enemy of God, and then expecting that somehow this close yet uneven relationship will encourage you in the worship of God. That doesn't make sense, right? It's backwards. We ought to allow our worship of God to dictate and define how we pursue a non-Christian. Not romantically, but to tell the glories of Christ and to call them to repentance and faith. Because what we want most is not necessarily a partner for life, but for salvation. For Christ to be exalted, for God to be pleased. I mean, just consider for a moment, how unwise missionary dating is, theologically speaking. 
If we recognize how corrupt our hearts can still be, how residual sin still allures us and appeals to us, how can we assume that adding another full-fledged sinner will leave us unfazed, unaffected, or be to our spiritual benefit? And listen, this principle is not only relevant for dating, but for many other aspects of our lives. Practice what worldly philosophies, lies, beliefs have we married our hearts to? Will career accomplishments mean more to us than our identity in Christ? Will we adopt a financial strategy that is only concerned with security, comfort, and wealth in this life, overlaying treasures in heaven? Will we vote based on party lines without weighing our convictions as citizens of heaven? Practice as delicately as I can put it. Are we just about really chasing after the world, hoping that along the way we don't forfeit our faith? Or is God ultimate? You see the difference? Is God first and foremost so we faithfully pursue Christ in every avenue and allow his preeminence to then influence and inform how we handle everything, relationships, careers, finances, and politics included? The greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, so that it leaves nothing excluded. We do not measure faithfulness by how many slices and pieces of our lives actually line up with God, but by looking at the whole picture, the overall and growing disposition of a heart that desires to worship and honor God. In everything. So in matters that are clearly a decision of obedience or defiance, faithfulness or faithlessness will hinge and be demonstrated in what we actually do, in who we side with. That's why for the Christian, marriage is never just about marriage. Singleness is never just about singleness. School is never just about school family, career, and on and on. In all these things, it's about our covenantal relationship with God. It is about faithfulness to Him. And rather than allowing such an inconsistency to permeate in Israel, such a contagious infection to spread, Malachi actually petitions God to take drastic measures. Look at verse 12. He says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. There's no messing around. God will ensure that a little leaven doesn't spoil the whole batch. And we should be just as serious. I'll keep the application short and sweet. One possible way is to use this verse to dissect our hearts. Where are we prone to be divided in attention and devotion, to try to straddle the line and play the field? And if you're having trouble determining sin or juggling between whether this is a wisdom thing or if this is actually a compromise, we'll invite another set of trusted eyes, enlist the help and counsel of other mature believers. Notice Malachi, he's rebuking a community of people. 
Why? Because this is a family affair. So we need to bear one another's burdens. We need to build up the discouraged. We need to exhort people with the word. We need to gently admonish the wayward. Look, when we're in community, we're all going to make an impact. It's unavoidable. It comes with the territory of being in proximity. The question then is, what kind? Is our impact sanctifying or sinful? As people of God, let's strive to promote faithfulness to God. And I'm so encouraged because even as I look at some of your faces, I am stirred and, and I recall to mind how you guys are doing this as a fellowship. And I just want to press you on to continue to do the same. Finally, faithless in covenant to our makers also exhibited in how the Israelites were faithless in covenant marriages. Our last point, faithless in covenant marriages. Verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. Verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Well, here it is. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now, these remaining verses present a similar scenario with a slight twist. In this scenario, we don't have a spiritually divided marriage. We have a marriage that has been divided and dissolved because of divorce. And God takes it personally. The Israelites try to hide their blatant sin by playing up other parts. And when they sacrifice, they go through the motion and even amp up the theatrics, wailing loudly or pouring it on with their tears. But God is not deceived. He is not appeased by their hypocrisy. And so he withholds his favor, perhaps through famine or an outbreak of illness. We aren't exactly told what it is, but the people get it. Their worship has been rejected. And it's almost as if God is treating these Israelites like how they are treating their wives, dismissing and ignoring them. This is their wake-up call, that God is on to them. You see, what happens between husband and wife never remains with just husband and wife. And the few married people here are starting to get a little nervous, maybe paranoid, but it's because God is always present. That's why, as Christians, we call the wedding ceremony a worship service. We call the marriage holy matrimony because God is in attendance. As the text says, he is a witness. And what you need to realize about this word witness is that in the Old Testament, it is strictly, it is strictly a covenant term. To us today, witness is more broad, right? Uh, we think of someone who sees something happening or is giving a testimony of an incident. But back then, it was much more. When covenants were made, witnesses were present to participate. They were not just passive observers. They bound themselves, guaranteeing, as it were, that they would do everything in their power and capability to see this covenant upheld and honored. 
So think less of someone providing their account of the car accident and more of an accountability partner. Someone who is invested and labors to keep you honest and true to your word. And here, God, God solemnly swears to be involved, to be invested in his people's marriage. That ought to produce hope and fear. Hope that God is working for the strength and health of marriages. Yet fear, fear is such a precious union is trivialized because God is watching. Which is why these Israelites are being chastised. God doesn't like what he sees. The people have broken their vows and divorced their wives. And God cannot and will not stand idly on the sidelines. As a witness, he holds them accountable. He tells it like it is. This goes against what God designed marriage to be. Verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Verse 16, for the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now there's a lot going on in these verses. In fact, verse 15 and 16 are some of the most difficult Old Testament verses to translate. I was saddened because I read a similar remark in every commentary I consulted. You know, uh, very tough to translate, many difficulties, hardest verses. And I kept beating myself up because I thought to myself, I should have given this to ministry associate Christopher Wong. You know, he has that fresh and brilliant seminary mind. Now, At first glance, while it may seem difficult to nail down exactly what these verses are saying, it is not difficult to actually gather what they mean. Here's the main takeaway. God ordered and structured the family unit in such a way that husband, wife, and children thrive and flourish best in the context of a faithful marriage. God instituted marriage so man and woman could be blessed. You think of Genesis, be blessed, be fruitful, multiply. Filling the earth by raising up godly lineage to proclaim his excellencies for generations to come. But with the Israelites, when they divorced their spouse, they disadvantaged themselves from obeying God's command, from achieving this goal. Was it possible? Sure, but there's no question it's a lot harder. And if that wasn't motivation enough, God speaks. He provides his own commentary on divorce itself. If you're using the ESV like I am, you can just drop down to the footnote of verse 16 and you'll read an alternate translation, one that the NASB also uses. Says the Lord, the God of Israel says that he hates divorce and him who covers his garment with violence. He hates divorce. Now, whether it's this translation or what's actually in the body of the ESV text, we can quibble and debate over later. But you don't need to be a Hebrew scholar to get a sense of what's going on. All these translations capture God's opinion of divorce, that he abhors it. You don't even have to make a decision on how the first part of verse 16 should be read. You just peek at the surrounding verses and the tone and condemnation levied against the people of God. 
God pounds his gavel three times so that the Israelites understand the depth of their uh, treachery, who they have been faithless to. I mean, you look at verse 14 and 15. She's the wife of your youth. This is not some spring fling, but you have been married to her for years. She's your companion, your partner for life, your confidant. She's the wife of your covenant, the one you have pledged and made vows to. I mean, one description should suffice. All three, the case is closed. Marriage holds a special place in God's heart because it reflects his heart. This is the only time in the whole book of Malachi where God is referred to as a God of Israel. God of Israel. Is this a coincidence? I don't think so. The reason God despises divorce is because it is fundamentally a contradiction of his covenant, of his commitment to his people, that he is the God of Israel. Now, maybe you're listening to this sermon and you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not married now, so this doesn't apply to me. Uh, This is something I can just put off or put in uh, my back pocket and I'll circle back when the time is appropriate. But as a married person myself, here's one of the best advice I can impart to you. Start now. Train today. It's not like when you're standing at the altar before everyone and you slip on your wedding band, it endows you with this magical power to be faithful from here on out. No, faithfulness. Faithfulness is a fruit of a faithful life, a faithful heart. And fruit, well, fruit takes a long time and hard work to produce. So get going. Lord willing, if you want to be faithful in marriage, then the preparation isn't only going through premarital counseling and gleaning marital advice from older couples. A faithful husband or wife is just a faithful person who's married. Because faithfulness can't be confined and compartmentalized to one section of your life. It is a character issue. So if you're unfaithful with your taxes, with your time, with your ministry, with your work, with your relationships, it will spill over into other areas. That's why God's admonishment in this passage is much more comprehensive. He says, guard yourselves. Guard yourselves in your spirit two times at the end of verse 15 and 16. I found this interesting story about the famous writer John Steinbeck. He's the author of Grapes of Wrath and of Mice and Men. Well, when he was 38, Steinbeck fell in love with a 20-year-old singer named Gwen Conger. But there was just one small problem. He was already married. And so how did he resolve this slight dilemma? Well, being the genius he is, he invited Gwen to his house and had her chat with his wife. You know, you could tell he had great writing ability, but uh, poor uh, people skills. But he put Gwen and his wife in a room together and gave them this instruction. He told them, I want you two gals to talk this out. And the one who feels she really wants me the most, gets me. And I know, we're just thinking, wow, what, this guy is dense. I mean, he's not lacking in the confidence, uh, confidence department. 
But after Steinbeck gave these orders, he left the room. And surprise, surprise, don't know why, but these women agreed to it. And Gwen Conger emerged as the victor. She got him. Yay, right? Well, nine years later, they divorced. Only for Steinbeck to comment, there goes that experiment. And this time, there is no surprise, right? I'm sure you saw that ending from a mile away. We suspected that and predicted it wouldn't last a lifetime because of his track record and his approach to marriage. He mistook where the problem was, not outside of him, but inside, not other women, but his own heart. Which is why God's advice here is so spot on. Guard yourselves, be watchful over your souls. Notice the solution has nothing to do with marital status whether you are married, engaged, or single. This is something you can put into practice today so that regardless of the season or circumstance of your life, God might find you faithful to him, to others, and anything else he brings in your life. And the good news is that this is not an endeavor you strive to achieve and accomplish on your own. Remember, God has gifted you a family, the body of Christ. And not only that, God has promised himself. He vows it to you. As New Testament saints, New Covenant believers, we have extra assurance. Because we have been united to Christ, a covenant relationship. That he will never leave or forsake us. That he who began a good work in us will see it to completion. And that's why we press on and we labor to be faithful. Because we know that he will provide us the energy because he will be faithful. Let's pray. God, our hope lies not in our own ability, not in our own discipline, not in our own commitment even. Lord, it, it is in you. We've seen the lengths you will go to redeem a people for yourself. Lord, you would send Jesus Christ as our sacrifice, as our substitute. Lord, and not only to pay our penalty of sin, but to pledge yourself to us, that you will make us more and more like your son. That you offer us hope uh, through your word, promises that we can cling to and take to the bank. And so, Lord, may you increase our faith. Would you help us to obey, to die to self, to put off sin and flee to your son, that we might become more and more like him. And we pray that we would also encourage and stir one another up towards love and good deeds, that we as a community might testify to the wonders of the cross and the glories of the gospel. We pray for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.